0: Tonight, here's the things we're going to talk about. Remember, not all of it, but a little bit. The first is we're infected with something dangerous called identity amnesia. The second thing is that you must wage war on the infection, or it will grow and grow and grow. And then the third thing is the voices that tell you who you are must change. That's what waging war on this infection called identity amnesia looks like. So why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage and... Then we'll get into this. This is a different translation than we usually use to make some of these words a little bit more accessible. Paul writes this to you. He writes this to Christians in particular. Don't let anybody condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules, they're only shadows of the reality of the substance yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or super-spiritual worship of the angels or saying that they had visions about things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. And they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You, you have died with Christ, past tense. And he has set you free, past tense, from the spiritual powers of this world. So then why do you keep on following the rules of the world if you've died to it? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules are just human People made them up. These are just human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. They pass away. They're perishable. They might seem wise. They sound really spiritual, really wise, because they require strong devotion, self-denial, bodily discipline. But they can't help you at all in conquering your evil desires. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights or your eyes on the realities that are in heaven where Jesus is, in the place of honor at God's right hand. Don't think, or think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Why? Again, again, for you died already. You died to this life. And your real life is hidden now with Christ in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just heard all of that. through the lens of whatever story we've been living out of lately, whatever identity we've been looking to to tell us who we are. Our grades, our busyness, our popularity, our humor, the way our body looks, the way we feel. That's where we are right now. That's how we walked in the door, is stuck in these other places we've gone to tell us who we are, to validate us. So Jesus, through your word, Because you're gracious, because you're powerful, come now and remind us of what's true. Come now and expose the lies in me and in my friends. We ask this because we need it, and we ask this because you're gracious. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So remembering who you are... Remembering your identity, keeping track of who you are, you would think that would be an easy thing to do, right? It's you, right? You think it would be easy to remember who you are, to know who you are, but it's actually a really slippery thing. This identity thing is really slippery, remembering who you are. It seems like one second you have a firm grasp on it, you're aware of it, and then the next day or the next week, you're completely off the map. You're clueless as to who you are, especially if you're a Christian, One day you're really aware of God, you're really aware of who he's made you, of what he's called you to be, what he's called you to do. The next week, the next day, the next hour sometimes, it's like you got knocked over the head with a brick and you don't remember anything. And you're off in some other reality, some other world again. It gets so bad that sometimes if someone held a gun to your head and said, tell me who you are, you might be at a place where or have been at a place where you wouldn't be able to answer the question. Be like, I don't even know anymore. You talk to an addict, especially if they've been an addict for long, you ask them that question, they won't have an answer. I don't know who I am anymore. I am heroin. I am sex. I am power. I am acclaim. I don't know who I am, though. This is how confusing this gets. Paul Tripp, a guy that I talk about a lot, I listen to a lot, he calls this identity amnesia. Again, getting knocked over the head and everything goes out the window. You forget who you are. He says it's a disease that infects us all. This passage says that because we forget who we are, we reinvent who we are, we we change who we want to be, we reinvent ourselves, we doubt who we are, we look for our identity in places you and I were never meant to to find our identity. This identity, amnesia, it's out there in the world, and it's in here in this room tonight because it's in every single one of us. It's like tuberculosis. Did you know you can have tuberculosis for years and years and years before it ever presents itself and starts causing serious symptoms? Identity amnesia is like that. You have it, whether you feel the pain from it now or not, whether you feel the confusion from it now or not, it's in you and it's in me. And it's wreaking havoc in some way, whether in a a subtle way or in a severe way. And it's contagious. Which means that in a room this size, if one of us in this little community, this group of people, if one of us is dealing with this, if one of us has forgotten who we are, it makes it all the more likely that your close friends are going to forget who they are too. If you're a person who's forgotten who you are and you're pretending now, you're hiding, guess what everybody else starts to do? Guess what your small group begins to feel like? Very fake. Everybody's hiding. Everybody's posturing. Everybody's pretending. Everybody's presenting some false identity that they want you to think they are. It's contagious. It's communicable. This identity thing, let's get a little bit more specificity. What is it? It is when... We elevate things or pieces of our life that can't possibly hold the weight of our life. For instance, we take a piece of who I am or a piece of who you are and we overinflate it so that that tiny piece of you is now you. We elevate our ethnicity. It's been the summer of seeing this in painful ways all across the nation, in our city, maybe in your friend group where people look at their race or their ethnicity and they don't say not just this is my race or this is my ethnicity, but this is who I am. And you begin to judge each other based on who is like me and who is not like me. Sexual orientations. Your sexuality is a piece of you. We're in a moment in culture where, there's, where, where the is out there is this is you. It's not a piece of you, it is you. And we overinflate that until it eclipses everything else about you. And it becomes your identity. It becomes how you define yourself. And it reshapes everything in your life. Your economic standing I'm poor, I'm rich, I'm middle class. And you look down on people above you or below you, or you envy them. Our beauty, our smarts, our resume, our spiritual performance, our moral performance I'm a virgin, I'm not a virgin. I did drugs, I didn't do drugs, I'm a partier, I'm not a partier. We define ourselves by these things, right? We use I am language. And that becomes who we are. And it infects us. Our ministry success, our athletic prowess, the shape of your thighs and the compliments you get because of how they look, or the definition of your abs or your pecs and the turned heads you get when your shirt's off. The feedback a professor writes in the margin of your exam that is like a shot of emotional heroin when you read it because it's just like, I matter. He said I'm unique. He said I'm insightful. He said it was the best paper in the class. And that, it's so alluring. It becomes how we see ourselves. I am this person. For the people in Colossae, it's a little bit hard to resonate with where they were tempted to root their identity, different culture, Different side of the world, different way of seeing the world, different time. The things they were prone to put their identity in were things like this: uber spirituality. Like you're not spiritual enough. Yeah, Jesus is great. He is raised from the dead. He calls anybody and everybody to leave their death and to find life in Him, just by looking at Him and saying, "I need You." But they're like, "That's not enough. That's that's too simple. Are you serious?" you got to prove it. you got to get some scars. you got to get some sweat in here. So there's this uber spiritual strenuousness, this religiosity, this ritualism, festivals, and all these other kinds of things that don't make as much sense to us. And I know that this is what Paul was most concerned about by this church. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you do too, because now we're on like the sixth or seventh time where Paul is saying, don't let someone deceive you. Don't let them condemn you. He says it back to back here, twice. Don't let someone condemn you. Don't let someone condemn you. Don't let them deceive you. Beware of plausible sounding arguments. Beware of these whispers that sound so believable and so wise. And I know this because Paul's solution every time, he's so repetitive. He just, it's like, Every other sentence, he's reminding you, this is who you are in Christ. You have died. You have been raised. Your life is now synonymous with Jesus' life. It is sucked up into his. That's who you are. That's how I know. I'm proving to you, if you're looking down at your passage, that this passage is about identity and the things we're talking about. What are the symptoms of it? What does identity amnesia feel like? This is really great. I think it's really descriptive how Paul in in an indirect way, when he gives the diagnosis, what this feels like. He says it's like chasing shadows. You ever seen a kid chase a shadow or a cat? Man, that'll make you insane, because you always think you're going to get it. You're like, oh, this, this thing's just as agile as I am, and you reach for it, and it's just air. It's vaporous. What he's saying here, like, we don't talk like this, what he's saying is this alternate identity... Or this identity amnesia, this forgetfulness about who I am and me trying to redefine myself in the lack of not knowing who I am. He says it's like chasing a rainbow where there's no end. There's no pot of gold. It's like trying to box up some smoke and take it home to enjoy it later. Box up. He's saying you grab it, you have a hold on it one second and then you don't. It's fickle. It's there one second and then it's not. It's unattainable. This is the addictive cycle, right? The addictive cycle, which is what all of us get caught into, not just drug abusers or whatever else, but all of us, the addictive cycle is this. There's a promise for a payoff, or there's a promise for escape from where you're at right now. Hey, life is hard. Just a little bit of this. One time, not going to be an addict. And it's like, that was really great. But then what happens? Life returns, right? Right? It didn't, have, it didn't have any sustaining power. You go right back to where you were before or worse. So you need a little bit more. You chase the smoke. You grab onto it. Guess what? It flows right through your hands. It's not there anymore. Got to have a little bit more. And before you know it, like two weeks ago, our passage, it has imprisoned us, taken us captive. Paul says that this, identity amnesia, is chasing shadows of a reality, shadows of Jesus, Which means it is chasing messianic or redemptive shadows. A shadow that says it can make you better. A shadow that says it can make you okay. A shadow that says it can clean you. A shadow that says it can heal you. It's not just a shadow. It's not just an empty promise. It's a messianic promise. Paul says, these are shadows. He doesn't put a period there of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is the substance that casts that shadow. So we're chasing all of these things that I just talked about, and we'll talk about again in a second. All these things are Jesus' shadows. These alternate identities, they look so good, so promising, so powerful. But as soon as you walk through the door in it, there is nothing but air. It's a bottomless pit. This is an odd thing, Paul says, these, this identity amnesia, this life of always trying to redefine who you are. He says, one second it will make you proud and boastful, and the next second it will condemn you. Did you pick that up in the passage? He says, the people who are trying to persuade these Colossians to come and get into the kind of their, like, their little uber spirituality. He said, their sinful minds have made them proud. They're proud, they're boastful, they feel superior. They've got it together and these other people don't. So hey, they're reaching out the hand of help. Come here, I found this awesome thing. They're proud, but then the rest of the passage talks about condemnation. Don't let, someone, don't let anyone condemn you. The same crowd that will call you and persuade you to identify yourself, define yourself by your sexuality, your appearance, your intellect, your grades, your more the same crowd that calls you to define yourself by that will condemn you when you fail. Will absolutely turn on us and stab you in the back. This is how it works. This is the the proud, boastful part of it. It's a coin, two sides. The proud part, the boastful part, the good part. Everybody in the room laughed at my witty comment. It was awesome. It was awesome. Now I'm known as the witty, funny guy. The pants fit. Or somebody somebody noticed, those jeans fit you really well. I got the A. I had a quiet time every day this week. Read my Bible, I prayed. I was the best soccer player on the field. I beat everybody. Couldn't even deal with my footwork. Fifteen people came to my Bible study, and you feel on top of the world. If you find your identity in being busy, you feel validated when your little calendar has no white space in it. Every little slot is filled up. I'm productive. I'm fruitful. I'm responsible. I'm getting stuff done. I'm killing it. And you feel worthless and lazy with no purpose when you have white space in your calendar and there's nothing going on. The same things I talked about earlier, the person who, the humorous person, the person with the fitting pants, the quiet time, the soccer player, here's what the condemnation feels like for them. You made a comment, you made a joke, and nobody laughed, or you heard that somebody said your humor is hurtful, that it puts people down, and you're devastated. Midterms meant you haven't been able to work out for two weeks, you've been eating like crap, and so now the pants aren't tight anymore, or now you feel awful. You look in the mirror and you can't even see the image in it. Same promise stabbing you in the back. Same identity that's now revealed to be smoke because you had a handle on it last week and now you don't. And it condemns you. The person with the Bible study, the next week, two people come and you don't want to do it anymore. You're like, forget this, forget these people. Why am I putting in all this work, preparing this thing? Nobody appreciates this. What's the point? Your soccer team gets crushed by the next team in the bracket, and you look like an idiot on the field. And you don't want to do intramurals anymore. The same promise stabbing you in the back when you fail. The same identity condemning you and crushing you. Identity amnesia is nasty, It's that hit, that's that hit of drugs on the good days, and it's that crushing piece of steel just pushing you down, invalidating you, saying you don't matter, saying you're worthless, saying you're nobody, saying you're nothing on the days where you don't measure up. Speaking of measuring up, speaking of the days you don't succeed, did you notice all the talk about rules and regulations in the passage? These alternate identities are rule-driven. They are legalistic. They are workhorses. They are full of rule-following, full of regimens, full of you dutifully following orders and dictates that have been sent down from on high. Which means identity amnesia is a tiring disease. It goes like this. Sleep with your boyfriend to feed your identity that you're beautiful, that you're desirable. Because if you don't, he's going to leave you or he's going to lose interest. Cut that person down with your humor to feed your identity as the funny guy or the funny girl. It issues commands like this, get that girl's number so you can hook up to her to feed your identity as the sexually smooth one with no strings attached. Miss church again and sleep in the is the order that's issued. We dutifully obey so that we can feed our identity as the studious one or the partier, or the one who's too busy this week. These alternate identities are not life-giving. They crush you with their rules. And when you don't measure up, you hate yourself, right? Am I right? When you fail, they are so quick to come and push your face in the mud. So quick. Even though they're the ones earlier who's saying, come to me, here is life. And lastly, Paul says these alternate identities have no power. They promise power, but they have no power. It's the very last verse. He says they have no power to restrain or conquer your evil desires. Let me, let me depict this visually for a second if some of you aren't following. David Pallison is another guy I read and talk about a lot. He, he described this kind of identity amnesia this way. He said we build, all of us, we build these ladders to nowhere. Here's what he meant. Imagine a ladder, vertical, and then I put it horizontal, right? There's like the two crossbeams and then all these little rungs. And that's kind of like a spectrum. You have this end over here and you have this end. Pallison said that with all of these different things we tend to identify ourselves by, like beauty or wealth or race or romantic abilities or whatever else, like we turn something that's kind of neutral Just normal differences that you and I have between each other, like down here is the less less smart person, down here is the whiz kid, down here is the person who can't even kick a soccer ball. Down here is the person who's like running circles around everybody else. Down here is the tall person, or down here is the short person. Up here is the small, tall person. We take these things that are just normal, neutral differences. They're not value laden. And he says we take that ladder and we set it up tall, and so the superior person. The place we all want to be is the smart one, the witty one, the smooth one, the connected one, the rich one, the tall one, the good-looking one. And none of us want to be stuck down here at the bottom of the ladder. And so he says we turn these ladders with pieces of our humanity and we turn it into this vertical value system. And so the way this works out in real life is when you're a little bit higher up, a few more rungs higher up than your friends, what do you do to them? You look down at them. You criticize them. You're impatient with them. Why can't you get your act together? What do you do to the people who are above you a few rungs on the ladder of beauty or the ladder of personality? They just, people are magnetically drawn to their personality and you're a few rungs lower. What do you do with those people? Because you so want that identity at the top. You want to be that person. What do you have to do to them? You start shooting arrows at them so they fall down so that you're the top one on the totem pole now, right? So you undercut them. You say, oh, she's awesome, but have you heard this about her? He's great, but, you know, whatever. Like, you got to cut him down, you got to bring him down to size. You get envious or despairing when someone else passes you on the ladder faster than you. How is it so easy for them? They got it so easy and it's so hard for me. You're really happy, maybe nervously happy, when you climb up a few rungs above the other people. You're like, yeah, something's working this time. This is great. So this is a a pretty in-depth description of identity amnesia, right? That's That's the first point is that you have this. I'm just beating a dead horse trying to help you understand how this is you. This is me. We do this. And we're exhausted and we're hopeless and we're confused because we're all climbing these ladders and guess what's at the top? Air. Smoke. Nothing. And we're doing this in all different areas of our lives, academically, socially, sexually, everywhere else. We're climbing these ladders. There's nothing at the top. So my question to you in this first point is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? What do you look to to define yourself? What data, what information, what feedback tells you who you are? The second and the third points go together. They're connected to each other. You must wage war against this infection. And the way you wage war is by listening to a different voice tell you who you are. You must wage war, which is different than what we think, because the alternative to that is coast. The alternative to that is God is going to magically strike me with lightning and remind me who I am, call me out of these deceptive identities that are ladders to nowhere, and he's just going to kind of just reach down out of heaven and pull me back. I think it's on autopilot. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But Paul is saying here we have to wage war. We've got strong language here. Twice he says, don't let anybody condemn you. With all their little rules about don't touch this, don't handle that, don't watch this. Don't let them do it. He doesn't just describe the problem, but he calls them to action. Don't let them do it. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Push back, argue with the little voices that tell you this is who you are or this is who you should want to be. There is a war that must be waged, Christian, if you are going to know who you are in Christ in a deeper and deeper and more and more compelling way. You can't just sit and wait for it to happen. It won't. I read an article recently where this guy was describing what it was like to live in Minnesota 100 years ago. He was saying, he was kind of telling this little folk story about how much of their lives revolved around wood 100 years ago. This is why. Life during the winter revolved around tending a fire because fire was key to surviving the cold. And tending a winter fire was a lot of work. It began during the summer seasons because you had to think and plan ahead for the winter fire. You knew unpredictable snowstorms and severe cold were coming, and you'd still have to do nearly everything you had to do in the summer, but everything would take longer in the winter, and you would have less daylight in which to do it. If you ran out of uh, fire or fuel in the bitter cold, you'd be in big trouble. So you're, you're cutting down trees all summer long, long before the first flurries, chopping them into logs, figuring out ways to keep them secure and dry. And then, when winter hit, the fire was always on your mind. No matter what you were doing, if you didn't fuel the fire, it went out. If the fire went out, the temperature dropped, and it took a lot more more wood, more work, more time to reheat a cold room and cold furniture. And so, every day, besides the rest of all of life's demands, you split wood, you restocked the fireside, you kept the fire fed, you cleaned out the ashes. That fire was the first thing you tended in the morning and the last thing you tended at night. Tending that fire was a lot of work, but it was necessary work because fire was key to survival. The connection makes sense here? What it means to wage war? Waging war begins when you don't feel like you're even at war. There's a subtle deception to this identity amnesia. Sometimes you don't know, you're confused about your identities. And so proactive work is called forth from you by God tonight to by his grace in his freedom that he has given you to begin to proactively cut the trees down, gather the wood, chop it, split it, stack it, keep it dry For the months or the days ahead when you will be in the dark, in the cold, in terms of who you are. Proactive work is called forth from this. This is why Paul, every time he doesn't just diagnose this and say, you bad Christians, you forgot who you were. He immediately goes back to the story of Jesus. Some of you know this and some of you don't. Some of you might have been raised in churches or if you're new to Christianity, you think that what Jesus offers the world or offers you is... Being uh, freed from hell so that you don't have to go to hell. Or saving you from your sins. That's part of it. It's a big part of it. It's a good part of it, right? There's so much more. The way the Bible describes the gospel or the good news isn't just God giving you a handout. Kind of a, you get to, I don't know, like a free pass. The gospel is that you are sucked into the very life of God himself. You are united to him. You are married to him You and him, in a sense, become one. Paul says in the end of this, your life is hidden in his life. Which means this. Think back to how you tell your story of how you became a Christian if you are one. Where does the story start? Does it start like that night at the camp you went to or the the message you heard or the thing on TV you saw? Or the really angsty, depressed moment when things just clicked in your head? Does it start there or does it start 2,000 years earlier or even beyond that. If you understand what your identity in Jesus means, your story doesn't start when you looked at Jesus by faith and said, I need help desperately and I know you've come to give it. Your story starts at the cross. I ain't making this up. Do you see this on the page? Paul talks about you have died. He doesn't say Die to yourself. He says, you have been raised to new life. He doesn't say, reach out and grab hold of the new life. Paul is describing your past. Christian, not Jesus's. He's describing your past now, which is Jesus's past. Jesus doesn't just offer you grace, forgiveness, life with him. Jesus says, Not only will I wipe away the sins of your past, I'm giving you a whole new past. I am ripping out that first chapter of your book and sealing in a new chapter. Your past is that you never got confused about your identity. Your past is that you were crystal clear about who you are, who God is, how he calls you to live. Your past, really, your history, all the way up to this point, is Jesus' history. It's a history of making good decisions, wise decisions, loving your friends, loving God, never manipulating, never twisting the truth, never taking shortcuts, never being so busy you don't love your friends. That is your past. It's what he means when he says, you died. How more literal can he get? I, don't, I can't conceive of a way Paul could make it more obvious. The old you is done. It just isn't there. How do you get more obvious than that? You're dead. That part of you stopped. It hit a wall. It's dead. It's buried. There's no way in the English language to to make it more clear. And a new you has risen up, connected to Jesus, which means his future is also now your future. We're worried about internships. We're worried about jobs. We're worried about will I ever get married. We're worried about money. We're worried about your parents, their marriage. We're worried about everything. But how often have you have you stopped and remembered, wait a minute, who am I? I have his future. I have his inheritance. I have his life. I have his power. I have his grace. I have his peace. He is victorious. I have that. In Christ, now. That is your identity. That is your new identity. Next week, Paul goes on to beautiful, beautiful, and so practical places. What do we do with what we just talked about? What does this new life look like then? What does does life look like when you remember who you are in Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Without what we just read, without you speaking this to us, We just go along, just on this merry-go-round of different identities. Hundreds of different ways we redefine ourselves, reinvent ourselves, that are exhausting, that never deliver what they promise, that always leave us worse off than before, more confused, more clueless about who we are. Jesus, we thank you, and it just makes us love you even more to know that you didn't just come to hand us a product, but you came to make us yours. You came to pull us into your life and pull us into your story. And you gave us literally your past, your present, and your future. Free us from the insanity of identity amnesia. For Christ's sake we pray and in his name.